Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. I'm your host, Reed Coverdale. I've been out of town all week, been up in Maine camping with my brothers. We've got this uh, cottage that's off the grid, right on the water, uh, like two-thirds of the way into Maine toward Canada on the coast. Uh, no electricity, no running water or anything. It's uh, it's all very primitive, and there's also really not much cell phone service. So it's kind of in and out, um, barely could even like load emails or uh, you know any pages or anything like that. So I've uh, been kind of out of touch, but I'm back, and we got some exciting stuff coming up. Uh, for now, if you're new, please subscribe to the channel. But um, if you're already subscribed to the channel, make sure you check out all the links in the description, specifically Substack and Telegram. I'm trying to boost my following on those two, um, those two platforms. I'm not allowed on Twitter. I tried to build another account last week, and they nuked it in a couple days. Got up to a couple thousand followers, but they got rid of it. So um, I can't do Twitter, so that's why I'm trying to do Telegram instead. So make sure... You uh, follow me there, and then Substack, I'm putting articles out a couple of weeks. I haven't done one this week because I've been gone, but probably get one out this weekend. Anyway, I got a returning guest to the show. He's been on a few times. I've been on his show, too. Fellow truck driver. Uh, he's a contributor at the Libertarian Institute, and he's my friend, Tommy Sammons. How are you doing tonight, man? Man, this sounds like you've been miserable for the last few days. <laughs> Doesn't that sound awful? On that sounds ocean? horrible. Oh my gosh! How how could I ever do it? Yeah, dude. Those have you seen those memes that go around on Twitter, or Facebook, or whatever? It's like you live in this cabin for thirty days and you get a hundred grand, but you have no cell phone service or internet. Would you do it? Okay. Like, uh, yeah. In a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So how you been, man? We haven't talked in a while. What's what you been up to? I just work. You know, you know how it goes. I, I'm all I'm doing is working and uh, reading and hanging out with my chickens, my ducks, and my wife. You know, that's kind of my mm -hmm. my my pit bulls. You know, so mm -hmm. which is deadly, apparently. If you <laughs> if you listen to some people online, I saw that actually. Our mutual friend Kyle Matovic, he sent me bunch of links to people freaking out about pit bulls what was what was going on there i, I saw the links you sent but how'd that all start i don't know i think i think some little girl wandered into some stranger's yard and their dog ate her or something i i, I honestly don't know i gave up on arguing with pit bull haters a long time ago but he was <laughs> texting me because he knows i have pit bulls so i'm telling him i'm like yeah but if you look at statistics, more bites happen from Labradors than any other dog. And, you know, yada, yada. And he's like, oh, my God, you're telling me all this stuff and you're right. I'm like, yeah, I gave up on arguing this stuff like in 2016 because, like, you're not going to change their feelings. I mean, you're not arguing facts here. So you're not going to change the way they feel. Right. Yeah. Um, the only time I really remember being scared of a pit bull was uh, when I was living out in Arizona. We... We were replacing toilets in Tucson, and the town was subsidizing toilet replacements. So we were working on behalf of the town for a contractor, and they would pay for the toilet, the town would, and then they'd also pay you to install it. 
and it was for <clears throat> replacing the older big tank toilets with the low flow ones so they could conserve water or whatever so we would go around town knocking on people's doors and they had to be under a certain income the uh, <coughs> owners of the house or whatever and then their toilet had to be at least uh from 1992 or before and have a high capacity flush or whatever so there were a bunch of metrics you had to align with uh, so we'd often go to the trailer parks where a lot of the Mexicans lived because that was typically where you'd find the people who have their old shitty toilets and make less than whatever. I forget how much money it was per year that you had to make less than or whatever. But anyway, we did go into some of those uh, neighborhoods and you open the gate and then this pit bull comes running out at you. And <laughs> I don't stop to find out if he's friendly or not. I just jump over the fence on the other side and then the owner would come out and kind of reel him in. But um yeah, have you uh, have you always been a dog person growing up too, or is that something as an adult you found an affection for? Or? Well, I mean, okay, so my my uncle back, I mean, we're talking forty years ago, 30, 36, 37 years ago. My uncle actually fought dogs. He had a lot of pit bulls at his house, and they had this like really beautiful brindle. It was a blue brindle pit bull named ET. I love that dog. That dog was just the most wonderful dog I ever met. And, uh, but he had like 20 other pit bulls in the back. You didn't, nobody can mess with except for him. I mean, that's just the way he had him trained because he was fighting him at the time. And so, yeah, I, I love those dogs. My parents always had cats. My dad wasn't a, my dad's not a big dog person. His, his dad always had dogs like uh, hound dogs and made, made him take care of them. So he kind of grew up like, I just don't want anything to do with dogs, but he had, he wanted cats. So we always had cats around the house, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, as soon as I, I moved out and I could afford it, I, I got myself a, I got myself a pit bull. Um, and I've, I've never, I mean, I've had other kind types of dogs, but pit bulls are my favorite. I, I just, I love them. They're so playful. They're so loyal. Like, you know, Boogie, he rode with me from the time he was like five weeks old. So he's like two years old when I'm home, I can't get him out from under my feet. Like <laughs> he, that's like his spot. If I'm yeah. like standing somewhere doing something, he's leaned up on, on my leg. So it's like, all right, like I can't find a dog more loyal than that. He would, I mean, he'll hurt me, but not on purpose. It's usually cause I'm a dumbass and I get on the floor and wrestle with him. Like I'm 20 years old. Um, but I mean, that's my own fault. I shouldn't be wrestling with a hundred pound pit bull, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. We always grew up with cats. So I've just always kind of been a cat person. I don't know. Do you like cats or you hate cats or indifferent? What do you think about no, it? I love cats. I do. Okay. I love cats. We have feral cats that run around the yard um, yep. that live out in kind of a, our brush out here. And yeah. I always, I always try to make sure they have food uh, when I see them starting to gather around. Uh, they come and go. You know, so when I see it, when I see they're starting to hang around again, I'll buy some food and I'll feed them. Yeah, I love cats. I don't yeah. have any issue with cats. Um, my mom, actually, she just put uh, a cat to sleep a few weeks ago. And I, that cat was obsessed with me. Like mm -hmm. it would hear my voice on the phone and it would go crazy. <laughs> you know, so like, yeah, yeah no, I love cats. I actually um, there was a period where I did have a cat riding with me for a while when I was in the oh, truck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, I, the, the funny thing about cats is, 
you know, dogs, it's almost like it's their default position to worship you and love you and mm-hmm. always want to hang out with you. Where cats, they're almost the opposite. They they naturally kind of like want to be left alone and go, yep. you know, hide. So when you have a cat who really has affection toward you, like you're talking with your mom's cat or whatever, like then you feel like you've really cracked through something. My mom actually, her cat just died a few weeks ago too. They didn't put her down. They didn't put him down, but he uh, he died and. Uh, he was, I think he was 12. So he was, you know, he was, uh, I was in the house when we got him. So I'd known him for quite a while. And the cat before that he lived, he was born before I was, and he lived till he was like 20 years old. So Mm -hmm. I was like 16 when he died and I'd grown up with him my whole life. And I don't know people who don't grow up with, uh, I don't know. I feel sorry for people who didn't grow up with animals or don't have animals. You know, they just add a different a, a different layer to life that you know you're yeah. kind of missing out on otherwise yeah and i'm in general in general i'm an animal person i like pretty much all animals i'm i'm not biased in at all beatrix doesn't like cats she's afraid of cats they mm-hmm. terrify her she's like those sneaky <laughs> little shits are going to kill me in my sleep you know so but <laughs> like, obviously we don't have any cats um uh, but yeah no i i like animals in general i i don't have an issue with any animals uh I can't think of any animal that I don't like. I've had snakes as pets. I've had lizards as pets, turtles as pets. I have chickens. I have ducks. Like I, I, I don't. I'm not. A, I don't care. I'm not afraid of any animal. Uh, I love animals. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, kind of switching gears here. I wanted to talk with you as a fellow working man who, you know, kind of had to uh, get everything you have on your own two feet. Um, I want to talk about the student loan bailout that's taken place, or I, I guess they just voted on it while I was on vacation. I don't think it's actually underway yet, but I think it's been approved and everything. It sounds like $10,000 of student debt is going to be wiped out for most, most debt holders. I guess not all of them, but most of them. And I've like thought about this a little bit. And on one hand, it's like, okay, it's weird to get outraged over this after all the massive corporate bailouts we've had, you know, where they spend way more money than what they're going to spend on this on uh, Boeing and, you know, uh, PPP loans or whatever. So in one way, it's weird to like get so outraged over this and ignore that. But I think what the reasoning is here, at least for me, like why it pisses me off is because I don't really know anyone who owns a corporation and who was, lazy and uh you know didn't do well and then took a ppp loan and got bailed out or whatever but i do know a lot of people who stupidly went to college for a degree they know they knew that they weren't gonna get their money's worth out of they knew they weren't gonna get a job or whatever and so seeing all these people that i know make dumb decisions and then just get bailed out for them anyway it just kind of hits closer to home than the abstraction of you know giant corporate bailouts taking place or whatever and so on a purely philosophical level i understand that the corporate bailouts are worse but this one i think the outrage is just because so many people are friends or family with other people they know who have made really dumb decisions and they get to see firsthand uh, their irresponsibility rewarded uh but i wanted to i was wondering what your thoughts are on that do you think that's accurate or 
Yeah, no, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. I, I, I'm, I guess I, I look at this a little different because of the way my kids are approaching college, they're paying their way through, mm -hmm. which is very old school, but they're going to community college to make sure they can pay their way, th way through. And uh, I, I commend them for that. You know, like I'm very proud of my my children for for approaching it that way because they right. don't want to be in debt. And I've warned them about the debt and the way that the debt works. And and I'm like, y'all just be careful about that. So they've chosen to go to uh, local community colleges so they didn't end up with all the debt. But we do have to we do have to recognize how the debt levels got to the to the extent they did. Right. Yeah. Because like I said, it's a very old school approach to be able to pay your way through college. I mean, I remember listening to um, uh, hearing Sean Hannity talk about how he worked construction to pay his way through college. And he went to like really high dollar, high brow universities, you know, right. not community colleges. So we do have to be aware and acknowledge that the reason that colleges are so expensive is because of government intervention into the, the educational system. And that when the government began to guarantee the debts to the colleges, the colleges started jacking up their prices because they knew they were guaranteed to get paid, period, end of sentence. And so you're not, you're not defaulting necessarily to the college, you're defaulting to the US government, which is why you can't write it off in bankruptcy because you owe the US government this money now. So there's, I have a sympathetic ear to these people. That is not to say I think that debt should be written off. I, but I do think that there should be a really hard look at the way this debt has been accumulated, the, um, the, <clears throat> the cronyism and the corruption that's involved in these universities in jacking up these prices they've added i think i think now i think i heard last last i heard i think administrators outnumber professors like three to one or some shit like that and like back in the day it was like one administrator for every like five professors or something like so they've they've it's basically like they've created um an external bureaucracy of the federal government but it's a private company bro you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I made the point the other day that if, uh, if we're actually going to bail these students out, you know, it seems like the schools should be liable for billing them out instead of us, <laughs> you know, because the schools are the ones, like you said, who have pocketed all the money because when you have the government guaranteeing that loan, they instantly get paid off by the government. They don't have to wait for the student to come up with the money to pay off the college. Like they're completely right. off the hook. The government's completely bailed them out. And then the student gets stuck with the debt, which sucks. So um, at this point, now that we're going ahead with this forgiveness, instead of people just constantly freaking out about it, it's like, all right, we really need to start talking about reforming the system or I'd say abolishing this system. Like if you're going to go to college, <coughs> you should have to convince a lender just like any of the rest of us do for anything else that you're a worthy investment. And if we started going that way, banks giving loans to students again, 
then the students would have to have a job or sorry, they'd, they'd have to be going for a degree where they have a likelihood of getting a job after they're done with college. And if we so basically, if we stopped pumping kids into college out of high school, if we just said, look, go to college if you need to, you don't need to for every job, but there are some that you do. And then if in order to go to college, you had to prove to whoever your lender is that you have a high likelihood of getting a job once you graduate, that would force the colleges to bring down their prices. Because right now they have a surplus of people going just because you're taught, like, if you don't go to college, you're going to be a failure. You're never going to make more than 10 bucks an hour and you're going to hate yourself and commit suicide by the time you're 50 or whatever. Uh, so you have that. And then on top of that, you got the government securing the loans and making the colleges able to rise, raise the prices as much as they want. So it's really like killing the idea that everybody's got to go and also removing the government from the system. That's what I think would mostly solve the problem. I think I got, I, I think I got it. What you do is you make the humanities departments illegal. You fire all those professors, you take those salaries and you pay off the loans of everybody who's trained to be doctors. Mm -hmm. And then I like it. Yeah. So, so everyone who got a degree that they can actually yeah, because if you get a, yeah, if you get a humanities degree, what do you make? You can't even make ten dollars an hour. You make like seven fifty an hour at Starbucks. <laughs> like you're worthless. Yeah, you're you know you're a piece of shit. You're making this world worse. Like you're not doing anything good. Like just kill yourself. It's like that Bill Hicks <laughs> joke. If you're in marketing, kill yourself. You know, like just just go to hell. We don't want you around. You're you're most of our fucking problem in this culture. You know. Or this yeah. is this humanities, this this gender studies, feminist BS. Just go away. You know, people people were successful and lived perfectly fine without you people around. So just go away. Black yeah. Wall Street happened before you people existed. Go away. We don't <laughs> want you. Yeah, it, it's always amazed me the struggle that people want to bring upon themselves so they want to stand for some sort of cause and in my opinion there are plenty of real causes out there that you could care about but they the the young people in this country want to artificially create a cause or a struggle that doesn't exist and pour all their energy into it it's like and i mean if you really cared about you know victimless crime or something like there's plenty of uh political activism or whatever that you could get involved in or if you really cared about people being persecuted unfairly there's plenty of wars that are raging around the world that are supported by the u.s government or whatever but they never latch on to any of those things it's always like oh there's systemic white male supremacy that's you know causing this patriarchal success and i need to you know we need to destroy that from that that's like all they want to latch on to and i think it's because they're not really up to the challenge of actually caring about something real you know it's like it's more comforting if you can just make something up because then your success at overwhelming whatever made up structure in your mind that there is you feel better about yourself than you know actual activism for something where the results might not be as advantageous as you would like them to be like if you kind of have a fake struggle then you can kind of almost 
imagine your success to be greater than it is, I guess. I don't know. I, I guess that's why they do it. Well, what do when, you it, think? when your entire when your entire world consists of the artificial world of the internet, like you're looking your your imagination is all you have to play with. And they 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 don't even recognize that there are people that don't go to college that make eighty five to ninety thousand dollars a year. Right. They're called plumbers. They're called yeah. electricians. They're called truck drivers. Like, like, just you need to ground yourself. You you know, like that that mean touch grass. You need to you need to put the screen down because this shit's lying to you. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's all a lie. You're you're on here feeling like you're doing something like so good and grand for humanity and and you're making $25,000 a year eating ramen noodles and living in your grandma's basement. Like stop just because your hair is pink and you raise a fist doesn't mean you're doing anything good. <laughs> exactly. Um, I've always found it interesting that the people who actually have to work for a living usually do it with someone else unless you're unless you're a truck driver like you and i you know then you're alone a lot of the time but a lot of people who have some sort of labor job they're working with other people but even you and i truck driving like we see other people all the time all over the place you have different uh dispatchers or customers or whatever that you have to actually interact with people where a lot of these people who get these office jobs when they're in a cubicle, they're isolated. And the only people that they're really <coughs> dealing with on a daily basis are on a screen. So it's very easy for them to have a false view of reality. And it's also very easy for them to kind of otherize people that they don't have to interact with. So, I mean, I think this is where a lot of the liberal city elitism comes from because a lot of people in the city they have a job where they're working in a cubicle and they're not actually having to relate to normal working class people they're not like jumping in a ditch and you know uh using a shovel right next to them or whatever so it's very easy to just dehumanize them because they've never shared a human experience with them where i mean i remember uh, working on the roof in Colorado, people were from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different political persuasions, but it was really hard to just think of someone as a dirty commie or a stupid Republican or whatever, because you actually have to work with them and their politics are like the last thing you think about because you care more about how good that guy is at stitching the corner on the roof or how good that guy is on at, you know, attaching terminations. not getting you fucking killed. Yeah, exactly. Like most of the time, you're worried about like getting knocked off the roof by right. you know a twenty foot, a twenty six foot two by eight or something. Like just like don't do that. Like you know, I, yeah. I damn near. Uh, I remember I was at a job one time and we were unloading a truck. It was when I was hauling steel uh, for a company up in Houston, and uh, this dude almost dropped a um, a twenty foot thirty inch bar on my head. You know, I mean that's that hard hat I was wearing would have been nothing but more mess for the paramedics to pick out of my skull, at, right. you know, as big as that damn thing was these uh, problem is here's the thing with the whole identity crisis, this, this, this entire like fad fable, whatever you want to call it. This, this has to do with lack of productivity, right? 
like I don't have an identity crisis. I've never had an identity crisis. I've had a drinking problem. You know, I've had all kinds of other issues, but I've never had an identity crisis, right? And the reason is, is because I've always been productive. I've always like my labor, the time I've spent doing something produces something that I can access and that I can enjoy and that I can see, right? And so it's like when I'm off work, like, what am I doing? I'm, I'm, I'm gardening, I'm raising chickens, I'm raising ducks. I, I built a greenhouse. I've built uh, two chicken coops, a duck coop over by my pond. I plan on digging out my pond more and making my pond bigger and stocking it up with more fish. Like I'm doing things that are productive and I'm seeing results. These people don't see any results. They're looking at screens and they're seeing artificial intelligence. Like you said, nothing's real to them. It's all in their head. It's all make-believe. It's all zeros and ones on a screen. And it's like, no, that is not the way that the, that the human body and humanity is meant to exist in its own, uh, in, in its perfect realm. That's not the way that humans are meant to interact with each other. And that if you, if, if I look at you and all I see are zeros and ones configured in a specific way, then, I mean, like, yeah, you're, you're less than human. You're just AI, you know, which may be true. I've never met you in person, I mean, I <laughs> but I don't, I don't, I choose not to look at you that way because I don't go through my life looking at the world that way. I interact so little online. I message with people that I know are real, you know, and, and I'm not worried about talking to some bot and getting in some argument with a bot like that. I don't do that. And yeah. so, or not when I'm sober. Um, but, uh, but so yeah, I've seen, I've seen drunk Tommy. It's entertaining, online. <laughs> but usually I know those people I'm arguing with are real, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's the, it's that it's, it, it's that in, when you're doing something and you're producing and you're seeing the fruits of your labor, then you're starting, then you start gathering meaning into your life. You're learning skills you're you're accomplishing something that accomplishment develops meaning into you as a person what gives you meaning isn't how many you know zingers you can lay out on timcast or whatever you know yeah uh on, on, it's just that's not what makes a man a man and and makes a person a person i actually don't i actually think less of a person if they spend hours online just trying to get the next zinger off i'm like all right like whatever like what are you actually doing are you doing anything yeah. you know you've spent like i can go back and i can look at your timeline and it's just bam 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 and it's like 60 tweets from one day and i'm like right. all right did you do anything this day did you accomplish anything you know did you read a chapter of a book did you do a push-up did you even did you cut your fingernails wash your hair, brush your teeth, anything. Did you do anything today? Yeah. And so that's the, but that's the reality of the world moving forward is that is their reality. And we're, and it's like people like you and I, we're trying to ground people and say, no, 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 no. You got to pull back some. There's something in the tradition of the way we were raised in the, in the things that we found important that, that actually nurtured, a sense of humanity and meaning and develop some sort of community around us. Right. And, yeah. and, and so 
this that's what these people are are, are missing yeah so do you think that's the inevitable trend of humanity that we are going to become less and less human because we are going to be forced to interact less and less. So for example, like something as menial as grocery shopping where you have to go to the store and you have to walk down the aisles, pick out your groceries, go through the checkout, walk out to your car in the parking lot. I mean, you're going to run into lots of different people doing that, but now you can just plan. That is the plan. (laughs) It is, man. I mean, that's what they want. Yeah. I mean, they've been writing about this shit since uh, Plato. Plato's Republic. That's what he's talking about, right? He's talking about creating a technocracy. It's just how much are you going to buy into it? How much are you going to actually participate in it? Like, are you going to let them to, like, design your life for you? Are you going to structure it yourself? Who's, Who's the... Who's going to draw the blueprint? Who's the architect of your life? Right. Is it Klaus Schwab? Is it Bill Gates? Joe Biden? Or is it Reed Coverdale? Is it Tommy Salmons? Who's who's going to be the architect? Yeah. Yeah. So, like, do you think it do you think technology is like a, an unstoppable evil or do you think it's something that we could <laughs> somehow harness into you know continuing down a path of humanity like is there is does technology necessarily destroy humanity because the example i was given of grocery shopping like you used to have to grocery shop that way now you can just order it online it shows up on your front step if you didn't want to you could basically never leave your house as long as you had your income coming from working in your kitchen or whatever you can have all your groceries all your supplies brought right to you do you think that there's any way around this or is it just some sort of uh technological reset that would have to take place like do you think humans have any hope of escaping that trend or is it just inevitable i mean i think i think technology is what you make of it right um there's there's gonna there's gonna be npcs and you can't you can't change that you can you can talk to the people who are available and aware and want to be talked to, and you can help them find a way out of the matrix. But I mean, that's why they call it taking the red pill. It's it's a voluntary choice. And those people, those NPCs that decide to take the blue pill, that decide to stay within the matrix, they're they're. they're I mean, you're not gonna. You what are you gonna do? Are you gonna set up a global government and force them to farm. Like, what are you going to do? Like, you right. can't do anything about that. Like they're going to be there. What you got to do, like the, the basis of it is what you really have to do is you have to start forming a community of like-minded people around you. And there's lots of ways to do that. Whether, you know, you get back involved with, with a church that maybe thinks the way you think, or I don't, I don't know, like a, there's freedom cells, you know, the freedom cell network, there's, there's you, that's, I mean, you moved to New Hampshire with the free state project. I'm sure there's a lot of people around you that feel like that think the same way you do. So I think the goal is like, what you should really be worried about is how do I surround myself with like-minded people that want to like, like check out of this, um, technocratic state, because it seems like 
it's it's gonna there's gonna be some aspect of it that's gonna take place. And your decision is how much of it you want to participate in um, and how, how much of an impact you want it to have on your life. Um, in Brave New World, there's there's a scene I kind of refer back to a lot where they they go on a trip and they go and view the savages as if the, the people living like out in the country on a farm outside of this like technocratic like dystopia or, or a museum you know, I item to, to view and they're just, they're interacting with them and watching them. And, and it's just like, it, that's kind of how you're going to have to view it. You're just going to have to look at it. Like some of us are going to choose to stay rooted to the land and to some sort of reality. But I I'm afraid that NPCs outnumber all of us and they're just going to go along to get along and they're just going to do whatever they're told to do. Yeah. Yeah, the most concerning thing is that, you know, um, uninvolvement is looked upon as heresy, you know, <laughs> like it's not just like they kind of let you go do your own thing in lots of ways. They try to force you to be involved in the system no matter what. And it's going to be interesting to see going forward how that dichotomy plays out, because I feel like as things get more and more drastic, you're going to see more and more people say, okay, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, this isn't fun anymore. Like at first I liked having everything at my fingertips, but now I just kind of have lost touch with reality. Like when there, when there was less screen time, when there was less, uh, you know, when there was less information flowing all the time, it seems like people kind of enjoyed it more as a luxury but now a lot of people, even if they're having a hard time breaking themselves away from it, they at least admit to themselves, I don't like this. I don't want this. I want to do something else. So it seems like as time goes on, more NPCs are going to get fed up with it. And I wonder as the minority gets bigger, if uh, uninvolvement is still going to be viewed as unacceptable or if you have a larger group of people who don't want in on this anymore that they'll just kind of be left alone. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There, I mean, there's going to be an aspect I'm sure of like kind of owing money to the mafia type deal. Uh, honestly, that is, it's it, some of it's going to be, you know, really hard for some people to break free of. And um, there are going to be those that are refugees and I'm sure there's going to be some Wacos. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to be honest. Uh, people are going to die. But I think for the vast majority of people, they're going to be left alone. Mm -hmm. As long as you're not out there causing trouble, you're not doing anything. You're not like, you know, causing riots in, in their in their cities and in their structures where where they do their business, then you'll probably be OK um, as long as you're not disrupting. Mm -hmm. Just um, you're going to have to have, come up with your own systems. You know, and that's why I moved to a small town. I mean, that was that was part of it. I was like, I saw I saw this years ago that that this whole thing was going to hell. I lived in Houston for 25 years. And I was like, man, I try. I, it took me over 10 years to get out of that place uh, once I decided I wanted to get out of there. And every time I would move, I would try to move somewhere and I'd get sucked right back because work, you know, work was there. All the jobs were there. And uh you know, finally, I just started doing over the road, you know, it's like, so I didn't have to be there. 
And uh, unfortunately, my kids still live there. Now, one of my sons is talking about moving down here um, with me in the next year or so. But it's just my all my kids know that if they need a place to go, that that my property's here and that we will work it out. I have room. We'll, we'll figure it out. And so that's all I can do is is try to educate, talk about those things. My kids are aware of my podcast. They're aware of the things I'm talking about. They know what's happening. And uh, they're making their decisions and they're choosing whether to be involved or not. And so it's all going to boil down to how many people are going to be sacrificed uh, on the altar of freedom. And this is this is something that a lot of people have realized. And this is kind of what the post-libertarian kind of thought process popped out of. It's like these people aren't going to leave us alone. Mm -hmm. They're not just going to leave us alone. Like you got to start making decisions. You're going to have to start making hard decisions. You're going to have to start forming communities and working together and doing these things. It was never intended to be like a slap in the face of libertarianism. And that's why I don't spend a lot of time like debating libertarians, even if I think they're wrong. I'm like, eh, like whatever. I remember being there. I remember thinking that way. I, in like eventually, like you start like peeling scales from your eyes and you start seeing what's happening, putting the pieces together. And you're like, all right. There's no leaving us alone at this moment. So what is my next move? You know, and mm -hmm. and so some people have determined, OK, it's like voting Republican. Some people have determined it's agorism. Some people have determined it's a combination of both. Like there's all these different things that are happening that people are coming to terms with. And 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 so this that's why I think this fight like between post libertarians and libertarians is is completely you know, a, a falsity and a distraction. It's like, no, like you could probably learn something from each other, you know, and like, just let it be. Um, but, you know, you're gonna, people are gonna have to come to the, to the awareness at some point in time, they're not going to leave you alone. You're not gonna get left alone. This thing is moving faster and faster and faster every day. I mean, the whole FBI raid on Trump, and all this stuff and seeing what's happening after that. Now there's rumor that Gavin McGinnis got arrested while doing yeah. his show the other. It's like this shit is it, it's just accelerating. They're not backing off. They're not slowing it down. They're coming for everybody who speaks out against the regime. And it's one at a time. And they'll go after the big guys. And then they'll just slowly chip away until there's no one left. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I'm I'm glad I was born when I was and not any later. Um, I, I actually usually wish I'd been born earlier. I recently revised that because the comet the, the comedic value of watching the shit show that is the present is just I don't think I'd want to pass it up, you know, like it doesn't seem like it was this entertaining 40 years ago. Maybe it was, but it wasn't moving as fast. It wasn't just thing after thing after thing where you're just like, oh, my God, I can't believe I have a front, you know, a front a front row seat to the freak show or whatever. So, like, I've recently accepted, like, OK, I'm glad I'm born when I was got to see this time. But, man, I would I don't know, just you know, having to perform daily tasks that force you to be a human instead of electively deciding to do them, it just seems more 
fulfilling to me. Like if you have to shovel your driveway and you have to drive somewhere and you have to, uh, you know, go get water from the well, whatever it is, like the more tasks that you have that are necessary in order to survive, they make them seem more important, I guess. Like, I mean, just deciding to go for a run in order to exercise or deciding to go for a hike. It's not like those things aren't fun and they can't be interesting, but what, like, even when you're on a hike, instead of like just walking the same stretch of trail back and forth, back and forth uh, to get your steps out, like if there's some sort of route you could take that you have to do this, tough obstacle in order to get where you want to go it's just more fulfilling and i feel like life is that way too if you have a task in front of you that's required to be done in order to get somewhere instead of just deciding to do it electively it almost makes it more interesting i mean i'm just i feel like in several decades if we're all still here almost every interesting task is going to be elective and you're just gonna have fewer and fewer people electively choosing to do anything interesting with their lives because everything will be available in front of you yeah you think that's true or oh yeah yeah no it's something that like i'm, I'm sure you were raised the same way uh, i was but my dad was like you have responsibilities you have to take them on and adding new responsibilities has never been a challenge to me like it's it's like it's challenging don't get me wrong you know like I, I want to do, let's say I want to do a podcast on like on a book that I got, like, let's say I want to do the divine comedy by Dante. Right. It's like, like 1200 pages It'd be challenging. Right. But if I took that responsibility on, if I announced that to my audience, I'm going to do this. And then I take on that responsibility and I do it. That moves me forward. It moves me in a more disciplined, more responsible direction. The responsibilities are good for you. You know, taking on responsibilities, which is ultimately what you're talking about, whether you voluntarily take them on. If you, if you, let's say, let's say, okay, I think this weekend I'm going to go on a hike and I'm going to do five miles this weekend. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's a voluntary act. But if you, if you lay out a plan and say, I'm going to be responsible for doing 200 miles a month and you just stick to it. And that's you're, you're, you're suddenly you're accountable for that and you become accountable and, and being accountable, whether it's to like to children or to a wife, these are good things. These build character. The problem is, is that, if you're not accountable, if you're like, well, I was in this relationship for myself, I was in doing this for me. If you're selfish and not selfless and giving, then it's not going to be worth it. All responsibilities don't, like require you to give of yourself and you're sacrificing part of yourself to be accountable for this action. Right. And so if you so, yeah, responsibilities like are extremely um, rewarding at the end of the day, because not only are you seeing what you're accomplishing, but you're seeing 
you're receiving that like that return that love back almost like is the best way i could put it that if you are being responsible like i'm responsible for my ducks or my chickens right if i go right. walking out by the coop they go follow me they're like what what's happening we got food we got treats we got snacks what's happening you know that's that's cool you know i feel like the pied piper walking out to the pond you know mm -hmm. and so they like they but I'm responsible for them. I'm, I, I take that responsibility upon myself. Nobody forces me to do it. I force myself to do it because I've, I've de decided that I'm going to be accountable for this. And so, yes. And, and so the, that's what parents are teaching you as you're growing up and they're forcing you to, to do all these chores and all this stuff you don't want to do around the house. They're teaching you to be responsible. And as that, as you become an adult, then you don't have to be responsible if you don't want to. And that's where people fail because they didn't like the responsibility. Maybe their parents approached them the wrong way about it, or they didn't see the benefit of it or whatever. But, but I'm here to tell you the more, the less responsible you are, the more pain you actually find yourself in, the more chaotic your life becomes because there's yeah. no structure. It's just go, go. It's just, everything's coming at you and you don't know how to handle it. And you have to learn how to deflect those things. And the best way to learn how to deflect those things is to structure your life, structure yourself and be responsible for all of your actions and take, it's like uh, what is that? Jocko Willink calls it um, extreme uh, accountability or extreme yeah. ownership, extreme ownership. That's what he calls it. So it's that kind of idea and, and you got to do that in your own life. And this is something that I've learned over years of being like, well, I'm an adult now. I can kind of do what I want, you know, which is, you know, part of the reason I've been divorced twice. Um, so, it, yeah, I mean, I was wild. I, I was I was crazy. I was I was doing all kinds of stuff I shouldn't have been doing. I learned the hard way, you know, like my I say this all the time on my podcast, but my my grandpa told me one time, wise men learn from other people's mistakes and smart men learn from their own mistakes. And most of us choose to be smart and not wise. And so that that's it. Like I I had to make a lot of mistakes that I knew were mistakes even while I was doing it. I'm like, I'm gonna wake up and regret this tomorrow. You know, it, it's like we and that's a young man's kind of curse. And you, you grow out of it eventually, you know, some of us later than others and none of us are perfect. We're all going to make our mistakes. But if you just start laying down like one thing, just lay out one thing, I'm going to be responsible for this. And this is what I'm going to be responsible for. And I'm going to make sure that that is done every day. That has to be done. And if you just start doing that, and you start adding to your list. Believe it or not, you have a lot more time in your day than you think you did. Yeah. And you'll you'll start accomplishing a lot by doing that. Yeah, I was talking to one of my brother's friends who was up at the camp with us, and um, he he he's been a cook uh, for like going on seven years now, I think, and or no, not that long, six I don't know, six years, something like that. And he started out in a kitchen making minimum wage, and he's worked up to making like in the mid twenties at this point. And he really had to, you know, he really had to form a skill that he could use to prove he was worth something. <coughs> and right. now with inflation and, you know, uh, 
lack of employment, <laughs> you know, lack of willing employees out there or whatever. The, he's still making in the mid twenties and in the kitchen he's working in. Now they're hiring people at $20 an hour to start. Mm. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of situations I can see like that, where all the initiative you had to take, all the learning you had to do is just destroyed because of the times like somebody else is just immediately somehow as qualified as you were without any experience. Another, um, you know, I mean, another area is like with a truck, you know, like now they're automatic trucks. A lot of them are. And so you and I had to actually learn how to shift through the gears and how to like, yeah, break. <laughs> we had, to, we had to figure all that shit out. And now you can just jump in the driver's seat and smash the pedal and go. Um, another yeah. thing is like with taking pictures now, with your phone, your phone almost like tells you how to take the right picture. Like, oh, move it to the right. Okay, align this line here. Okay, and then it adjusts the lighting for you. Like all the skill of photography is just taken out of the craft and it just does it for you. And I think as that trend continues, it just oh, yeah. it, it kills I mean, even it, more humanity. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there's there small things too. Like I remember, I remember in high school growing up, and, and the teachers would always tell you, you better learn how to do this math because you're not going to have a calculator in your pocket. Yeah, right. And so like, I still do math by in my head. I yeah. still do math in my head because I was trained to do it in my head. Same. And yeah. it takes me no time to do it. My wife's always like, ah, I do it. So I'm like, I, I just learned how to do it. You know, um, I remember did you do uh, flashcards as a kid. Did they have those back then? That's how yeah. I learned. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we did flashcards. <laughs> My dad would just like, my dad was always a big math guy. So he would just mm -hmm. write down algebra problems and leave them for me, like randomly on the kitchen table and ask yeah. me to tell me to do them. And, you know, and so I would just start, I would just start jacking with stuff and like learning how to do it. And that's how I learned how to do math. And so, uh, or I remember in high school having everybody's phone number memorized. Everybody, yeah. I, all my friends' phone numbers were memorized. And it's like, now I, I can tell you my wife's number. I can tell you my number. That's it. I don't, yeah. I don't know any other phone. number. I remember my phone number from high school. I remember my girlfriend's phone number from high school, but I don't know any phone number, anybody I hang out with today. Yeah. It's just crazy. It's nuts, man. It's yeah, like, man, I, I didn't get a smartphone until I was, I think I was 20 when I got a smartphone. And so I started setting utility poles for the power company. Um, when I was 19 and so I went like a whole year and a half or actually, no, I, I was 21 when I got a phone. So I went like two years without a smartphone. And so I just had one of those address books in the pole setting truck mm. and we would just get an address where we're supposed to go and you'd find the town and then you'd go to the index, figure out where the street is and then you find the a key map. Like, okay. yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, so when I first started driving truck, you use maps, you didn't use yeah. phones. Yeah. And then like you'd learn the town and you'd learn where the streets are. So you didn't have to actually open the map anymore. Right. It'd be like, okay, so in Chestnut or whatever. Like, I'm going to go over there. I know right where that is. And now someone could be just dropped from Arizona in the middle of New Hampshire with a smartphone and they could find an address just as easily as you can. And they probably could find a faster way to get there even though you've lived in New Hampshire your whole life because the phone will just like, beep. so it just yep. takes all the, all the memorization, all the skill, all the, 
you know, all the work that you've accomplished over the years and just kind of depletes it to nothing. So it's, yep. uh, I don't know. They've subsidized intelligence. Yeah, that's what it is. Skill and intelligence. They've sub subsidized all of it. Yeah. Yeah. But there, I mean, there, there's, you know, and that's why I say it's, it's like, you're talking about responsibility, you know, like you, 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 you take that upon yourself. You're that teaches you discipline and that's how you got to have to be. Cause I mean, you can look, you can look at the trends. You can see like with the, with the way that the, that food's going, the supply chain is like, this isn't, this isn't going to be good forever. It's not going to last forever. And you better be, you know, you gotta, you gotta kind of take it upon yourself to do things and make sure that you're in a good position and that's part of being in a good community of people that will take care of each other, you know? And that's why back in the day, like during the great depression and stuff like that, the extended family was so important is because y'all took care of each other. You know, a lot right. of people don't have that luxury nowadays. You're not close to your grandparents. You're not close to your, you know, uh, aunts and uncles and stuff like that. You have to create those types of relationships nowadays. So those relationships are important. Um, you don't want to, you know, I, I've been lucky most of my life. Like whenever I fell on hard times, if things were bad, my parents were always there to make sure they could help if I, if I needed it always, I never liked asking. It would always be like, we're like, I'd be like in the, about to get kicked out of my apartment before I'd be like, Hey mom, can I borrow 50 bucks just so I can pay rent, you know, or whatever, yeah. because I would do, I would scratch, scratch and scrounge and, and do everything I could to fulfill that responsibility because I knew I had taken that upon myself. And, and so it, and, and it feels horrible when you take on a responsibility you can't fulfill. And a lot of times people will let that discourage them and they'll run away from the responsibility at that point, but that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to say, I took this on and I'm going to keep scraping. I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep clawing until I get it right. And once I get it right and I'm comfortable in getting it right and I know I have it down pat, I'll take on a new responsibility and I'm going to make my life harder because I know that it's like working muscles. It's like reading or anything else when you're reading, when you're writing, you're working your brain muscle, right? When you're talking on podcasts and you're trying to think of like these ideas and come up with these conclusions and, and, and dig for this information that you've drawn in maybe three, four years ago, but you know, it's in there somewhere. And it's like, you're going through this Rolodex in your head. Like you're, you're working that brain power or when you're, when you're like Kyle and you're lifting weights and, and doing pull-ups and working out every morning, every day, heart, that's what you're doing. And you're doing that to your discipline and you're doing that to your mental fortitude, your mental stamina, and your mental strength. And you do that through taking on more disciplines, more responsibilities, and that moves you forward, right? So I've always told, I keep telling people like, whenever there's food shortages, it's not gonna be hard for me. I grew up very poor. I was eating, like my mom would go three days without eating. Like we lived on peanut butter and jelly and oatmeal for years. Like mm -hmm. it's not gonna, it's not gonna be shit for me. I can eat anything. I can do whatever I need to do and I can survive. Like there's a lot of people that have, not ever hit hard times in their life. It's going to be really, really hard for them. And they have to start making arrangements now, 
mentally preparing themselves today because tomorrow might be really fucking bad. Yeah. Well, on that positive note, where can everyone keep up with your work, Tommy? <laughs> libertarianinstitute.org forward slash year dash zero forward slash. That's libertarianinstitute.org forward slash year dash zero forward slash. Got any interesting guests coming up or anything you want to tease or just chilling over there? I actually recorded with a garbage man, Andy, because he got oh, into yeah. a bunch of shit with feminists last week. <laughs> and I haven't released it for the public yet, so I'll be doing that probably this evening. I'll release it out there. It was a fun conversation. We goofed off a lot because I know him. We've hung out personally. Uh, yeah. Been out with Scott on the boat together and, and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, then next week I'm recording with Mark Metz and I'm recording with LB Mooney's and then, um, I don't know. We'll see what else I'm kind of playing it by ear, seeing where it goes. Just, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I think garbage main is like you just 20 years younger with a shorter beard. You guys remind <laughs> me a lot of each other. <laughs> His hair is a lot redder than mine. Is it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Don't take it as an insult. <laughs> no, right, I, I love the dude. He's hilarious. He's funny. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, uh, check out the links into the description. Uh, Tommy's down there, Libertarian Institute. Go check him out. Uh, I'll be doing the Four Horsemen on Sunday at 8 p.m. with uh, Phil Labonte as our guest horseman. We got to get you on one of those sometime, Tommy. You'd be you'd be a good uh, you'd be a good horseman, I think. I'll do it. Yeah, anytime for sure. All right, man. We'll take it easy the rest of the night. Thanks everyone for watching, and we'll catch you on the next stream. <laughs>